In this podcast, we'll start to think about how we might create a device, a technology, based on these molecular building blocks with their remarkable quantum properties. So we have this method, this possible method of creating arrays of NHC60. We have our nanotubes, we fill them with NHC60, and then we have an object which these things are no longer floating around, they're physically anchored, and we can start to think of that as a sensible component of a technology. But there is a, a remaining deep problem, and it's this. These guys are only a nanometer apart, a billionth of a meter. The thinnest wires that we could put down at the moment might be tens of nanometers across, so it'd be this sort of size. So there's no way that we really can imagine being able to come in and alter the state of this chap without actually affecting a whole bunch of them. We can't wire up our qubits because they're simply too close to each other. They're too densely packed. That might seem like it's a showstopper and there's just no point in thinking of this as an array if we really can't get in and control the information stored on this one separately from this one and so on. Fortunately, there is a way forward that's been, that we've worked out theoretically and we've even demonstrated in small systems, simpler systems than this, and it's a technique that we call global control. And we have an animation to show how that works. Now this is a very sophisticated animation trying to explain a very complicated point, but I wanted to show it anyway to see if I can explain the gist of it. So here we have one of our molecular arrays, and each of those balls, each of those fullerenes, cages a single quantum superposition. So let's take them away and just have this abstract representation of those superpositions. Each ball has an arrow inside, and if the arrow points up, it means that that quantum superposition is uh, in the alive state, or the one state labeled here. If the arrow points down, that's like our Schrodinger cat being dead, or in zero. But the arrow can also point left or right, and that represents certain kinds of superposition of alive and dead, or zero and one. Now, these arrows are actually rotating under their own, they're rotating on their own, and that's because of the natural physics of the molecular array. The superpositions change over time. But there's a second thing going on, and that's represented by these purple flashes. That's us, the experimentalist, the guy outside the system, sending in pulses of microwave energy. These pulses cannot be targeted down to one molecule, one guy, it's impossible, but we can hit all of them at once. And it turns out that that's enough to give us control of the patterns in the overall system. Here you might be able to see that there are two competing patterns, one shown in green, the other's highlighted in blue. The green one involves some of its qubits being up and the blue one involves some of them being down. Now, as we send in our timed microwave pulses, the combination of these pulses and the natural physics of the molecular array means that one of the patterns will grow and then eventually contract back again. We're controlling how the patterns evolve in time. And it turns out that that idea, the control of patterns of superpositions, is enough to allow us to do information processing of any kind within the array. It allows us, in fact, to build a, a quantum computer and perform any quantum program within it. So we've seen that uh, it seems we can assemble these tiny objects, these one nanometer buckyball objects, into arrays and larger structures. 
And even though they're then so close together, we can still control the behavior of the overall entity. So things look promising. Uh, we may indeed be able to progress, we hope to be able to progress in this direction towards a real functioning technology. And there are many other researchers around the world that are taking other approaches to try and crack the problem of what should a quantum computer's technology look like. But now, suppose that we are able to crack that problem or some other team is able to do so. What would the thing actually be good for? I think we should say a word about that. Now, the first, one of the first things that people worked out on paper a quantum computer would be very good at is something called factoring numbers. And factoring numbers is simply like finding out that the number 12 is actually uh, 4 times 3. Those are the factors. Easy enough if it's a small number, but if the number becomes very large, for example, 100 digits, 200 digits, and you're asked, does this number have factors or is it a prime number? That is an incredibly hard problem to work out on a conventional computer. In principle, you can do it given enough time, but the impracticality of solving that problem on a, on a sensible timescale of months or years is something that defends our data. In fact, you can use it as the basis of uh, an encryption scheme. When we send our credit card details over the internet to buy something, that information is encrypted, and it's encrypted by a protocol that could be broken if only people could factor numbers. Now, a quantum computer could factor numbers very efficiently, vastly more efficiently than any conceivable conventional machine, no matter how large, even if it was a network of thousands of machines working together. A quantum computer, with its fundamentally different approach, its ability to contain within itself many different possibilities simultaneously, would be able to factor numbers spectacularly quickly. And that means that, in fact, the world's codes, most of the world's codes, in fact, depend on this factoring um, impracticality, and those codes would become vulnerable if one had a quantum computer. And indeed, because of that, some of the money that enters the field of research is coming from intelligence agencies and military organizations who feel that if anyone's going to have a quantum computer, it wants to be, they, they want it to be them. But there are other uses, uh, much more positive uses, you might say, for such a machine if we're able to build it. One use would be in simulating other quantum systems, which doesn't sound very interesting, but there are many processes in nature, many things that we might invent that are deeply quantum mechanical in nature and therefore very hard to simulate on an ordinary computer. But if we have a quantum computer, then we can efficiently, or we can hope to efficiently simulate these other systems and really understand them. And that will help us to understand things like photosynthesis in nature and perhaps also allow us to invent wholly new things. So there's reason to be hopeful that if we could build a quantum computer, it might be the enabling tool for a new golden age of research in many different areas. A very exciting possibility. I think that it will be at least five years before we really know for sure which is the right technology to go for, and maybe many years more before we really have a large-scale machine that can do these fantastic functions. But because the potential is so great, it's, uh, I think, worth investing time and energy in trying to create these things. It's an exciting field and one that's uh, still growing, and we have hopes that these molecular structures might just be the right way to go. So that concludes this series that's looked at some ideas about nanotechnology, quantum mechanics, superpositions, 
and future technologies that might put these things together in order to build a very powerful new kind of machine. I hope you've enjoyed these podcasts, and either way, I'd like to hear your feedback uh, to my email address s.benjamin, that's B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N, at qubit, Q-U-B-I-T, dot org.